Unfortunately, no one can be told what the Matrix is. You have to see it for yourself. To 90.7 FM KALX. I'm Franklin, and this is Brooklyn Rock. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, we'll take a look at the world of science and technology. I'm Lynn Lee. Joining us on today's show, Professor Christoph Koch will discuss his theory on consciousness. I'm Gordon Campbell. Also, we'll find out how we smell. So stay tuned for all this, plus the world-famous question of the week, coming right up here on Brooklyn Rocks. I'm Franklin. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. I'm Lynn Lee. And I'm Gordon Campbell. All right, so how's everybody doing? Back for a week of science, exciting fun. Well, I got some sad news to report first. Closing it's not down. about Martha Stewart, is it? Because I'm actually, deeply distraught about Martha Stewart this week. <laughs> actually, it's related to food. They're actually closing down one of the greatest institutions in America. McDonald's? Close, but supersizing. I thought that went the way of the uh, Atkins diet. Or maybe we're just all well endowed. <laughs> I'm not sure what that means. <laughs> <laughs> but according to a study that just came out from the public health department here at UC Berkeley, it turns out we're actually eating way too much and not exercising enough. Not really that surprising. I guess you know that for a while. Right, but the ratio they came out with is something like the time we spent watching TV and movies to the time we spent exercising about 9 to 1. Wouldn't it be good if we'd have some extra cycles in the uh, movie theater? that we could Maybe use it to charge up the movie projector, right? <laughs> <laughs> so what do they actually suggest we do about it? They're just saying that the trend is that we've been exercising less and less over the last 10 years, so it's not good news, basically. And then they did some comparative studies. For example, uh, in terms of the amount of hours we work compared to other European countries. We work about 1,800 hours a year while people in Europe work about 1,400 hours. So we're also spending way more time at work, sitting in front of the computer, driving to work or whatever, instead of actually putting useful physical activity into our bodies. So this was work carried out by Linda Dong in the Public Health Department here at Berkeley and it's published in the uh, International Journal of Nutrition. So maybe people would exercise more if they're able to climb up walls and ceilings. Just like Spider-Man, huh? Yeah, definitely. So there are some researchers at the Manchester University in the UK who've made a new material that's covered with nanoscopic hairs that can mimic those found in the gecko's feet so that it allow people to walk on walls and ceilings. These hairs are modeled after the geckos, and on each of their feet, millions of tiny carotene hairs called setae, and basically van der Waal forces mm-hmm. that does this sticky climbing action. So is this enough to keep us on a wall? What they've been able to do, Andre Geem and colleagues, is able to make tape, basically, that have millions of these little synthetic hairs on the surface, and they're both very flexible, the tape and the hair, so that it can conform to the roughness of the surface that you're attached 
attaching this tape to. They believe that this material can have many applications, tires on vehicles or robots. One piece of tape, about one centimeter square, holds about 100 million of these artificial hairs and could support a weight of one kilogram. It's kind of like nanotech Velcro. Yes. <laughs> Microscopic, huh? What's wrong with just using a couple plungers and, you know, working your way up the wall that way? Ducks are ghosts. Yeah. So, um, if people are interested in this, they can find the work in Nature Materials. All right, well, have I ever complimented you all on your magnetic personality? Not me. <laughs> well, if I have it, I'm sorry. I, and in fact, I think now I have to compliment the great planets of Uranus and Neptune, because their magnetic personalities are quite different from that of Earth's. You mean it's on a different axis or something? So the Earth's magnetic field, much like a bar magnet, has very defined north and south poles. Hmm. But Uranus and Neptune have very different magnetic fields characteristic. In fact, they're tilted off their rotational axis, many different poles coming in and out all over the planet. So it's been a big question exactly why is it these magnetic fields are so different in these planets? Do they have some different mechanism? So researchers Sabin Stanley and Jeremy Bloxham of Harvard University have reported in the recent issue of Nature that the same mechanism, but it's just that the core of Uranus and Neptune is a little bit different. Hmm. Wow. So in the Earth, the uh, molten revolves around a solid core in the Earth, right. and that creates simple flow around this core, creating mm-hmm. the magnet. But in Uranus and Neptune, they only have liquid cores, hmm. and because of that, there's no stability of the liquid around the core, and so it's more unstable. So do those planets have any sol- uh, polar caps? Actually, several different polar caps, it turns out. Their main magnetic fields are tilted off of their rotational axis, so they have two different poles, but if they have a lot of smaller little magnetic fields coming in and out as well. Wow, so it's just mush down there, huh? (laughs) But it's uh, fascinating stuff and can be found in the recent edition of Nature magazine. So getting back to McDonald's, have you ever wondered what was in your mystery meat? It's beef, isn't it? <laughs> well, you can wonder no more because there's a company out there, Bio Moreau, that has produced a gene chip whereby which you can identify the mystery meat in any of your food items. Actually, know that if they're serving horse meat or that <laughs> that's kind of right. Thing. They have 88,000 hand-picked probes from 33 kinds of vertebrates, including ostrich, Mozambican eel, and more disturbingly, cat. Oh, cat! And also human. <laughs> as a matter of fact. But they say that they, they claim that that's purely for control purposes. <laughs> so we'll know that they didn't accidentally put in some penguin meat in there next time we go that's to the right. restaurant, right? If you ever wondered if there was kangaroo in, in your McDonald's hamburger. <laughs> well, how does it work? Well, like what you would do is purify the RNA from your meat sample and then hybridize it to the chip and, <laughs> and find out which protein. <laughs> it would probably be a more lengthy process. So it looks for certain protein markers that are inherent to each of these animals. Well, different genetic markers. See, I really think this is information that maybe the public needs to know, but really doesn't want to know. (laughs) Exactly. But hopefully it'll make our food a little bit more appetizing in the long run. Well, I don't want the McDonald's. Yeah. (laughs) I guess the first step would be to go to Science Now, where this article was published. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. You're listening to Berkeley Grox, only here on 90.7 FM, KALX. Well, coming up next, Professor Christoph Koch will join us to discuss the quest for consciousness. So stay tuned. Thank you. 
Welcome back to Berkeley Grox, only here on 90.7 FM, KALX. Well, consciousness is an aspect of human life that many of us take for granted. The world passes seamlessly before our eyes, unified as holistic perceptions. But much of this conscious experience may be an illusion, created by the operations of an imperfect brain. Indeed, it is even unclear why there should be such experiences at all. Scientific inquiry into the nature of consciousness is just beginning and starting to reveal some surprising facts about how the brain gives rise to conscious experience. Well, joining us today on Berkeley Grox to discuss these issues of consciousness is Professor Christoph Koch. Professor Koch is the Lois and Victor Trundle Professor of Cognitive and Behavioral Biology and Executive Officer for the Computation and Neural Systems Program at the California Institute of Technology. He is the author of several hundred scientific papers and journals, and he studies the biophysics of computation and the neural basis of visual perception, attention, and consciousness. He is the author of the new book, The Quest for Consciousness, A Neurobiological Approach, and he joins us today on Berkeley Grox to discuss uh, these issues of consciousness. Uh, Professor Koch, thank you very much for joining us today on Berkeley Grox. Good afternoon, Charles. Well, certainly a pleasure to have you on the program, and you've certainly written a very fascinating book, The Quest for Consciousness. Curious if you could explain a little bit about, you know, consciousness is somewhat of a tricky issue. How do you actually go about scientifically defining the problem of consciousness? Well, first of all, different people mean different things by consciousness. I mean, at one level, consciousness is about am I awake or am I unconscious or am I a patient in persistent vegetative syndrome? So the consciousness that we mean, that most philosophers today mean, or most scientists who study it, is that assuming I'm a normal subject, I'm well awake, then I can see something or I can feel something. And these subjective states, when I can see the blue sky or I can feel a toothache, those subjective states, philosophers call them qualia, those are the elements of consciousness. How do they arise? How can a physical system like the brain undoubtedly is, how can they give rise to these subjective states? When my computer, for example, I and most computer scientists believe, does not have such subjective states. You go on in the book to discussing your approaches trying to find the neural correlates of consciousness. So for the past 2,500 years since you know people really began to think about systematically about consciousness, it's always about how do you define it and how do you get at the heart of the mind-body problem, mm-hmm. which I just mentioned. How is it that a physical system can have subjective states? We've not made a lot of progress there. So the approach that Dr. Francis Crick and I have advocated is, okay, let's leave that aside for the moment and focus on the correlates of consciousness in the brain. What are the minimal neuronal mechanisms that are necessary for any specific percept, like seeing blue, having pains, hearing a tone, smelling mom's apple pie. Mm-hmm. What are the minimal neuronal conditions in my brain, in your brain, or in a brain of a dog, or maybe even of, of a mouse or fly that are sufficient for this particular specific percept? This is something that can be now addressed in a lab using sort of empirical research. So how do you actually go about this? Well, one of the best ways to study this visual perception. Now, the advantage of visual perception over, let's say, studying self-consciousness or studying pain consciousness is that, A, it's very easy to manipulate. I can very easily take an image and put it on a monitor and show it to you. I can manipulate it. But in particular, I can make things disappear. Magicians <laughs> do this in several hundred years, but psychologists over the last few decades have also learned I can manipulate systematically what's the relationship between what's out there in the world and what you see. So in other words, I can show you things, you're looking at them with your eyes, you're directly looking at them, but you may not see them. There are all sorts of visual illusions, for example, if you go to my website, you can see them. When there's illusion, you're looking at something, but you only see it transiently, or you may not see it at all, yet it's still physically present. And so now I can take such illusions, and I can study them in humans, I can put people in a magnetic
electromagnetic resonance scanner. I can train animals to do this. I, I can look for the footprints of consciousness in your brain. Where are the neurons? Where are the nerve cells? Where is the part of the brain that responds to stimulus when it's just physically present in the world, but you don't perceive it, you don't consciously see it, and where are the neurons that are only active when you actually see something or when you hear something or when you smell something consciously? I see. So you can look at the parts of the brain then when you've changed these conditions of what people are seeing to see what parts are active or what parts are not active. Exactly, exactly. And that's really the most direct way to track the footprints of consciousness in the brain. I see. You, you go in the brain and, and talking about the visual system to discussing a lot about the architecture of the visual pathways and how there are perhaps two different types of pathways, conscious and an unconscious pathway. Well, it's probably a general story for not only for vision. Again, vision we know best. We know more about visual modalities in the brain than all about the other ones. But it's probably a general phenomena that we call a zombie systems. These are quite sophisticated but stereotyped sensory motor systems and visual motor systems that help me get around my day every day when I get up in the morning and when I tie my shoes, when I brush my teeth, when I drive a car, when I bike, when I run, when I climb a mountain. These are all very sophisticated activities. We know they're sophisticated because if people try to build robots to do them, it's very difficult. Yet I can do these things without being aware of them. Or if I'm aware of them, I'm usually only aware of them after I initiated them. You know, it's like the batter who sees the ball coming and he has to decide to hit the ball way before he's actually consciously aware that he's hitting it. Mm. Now, these are all stereotype systems, like driving. Very often you find yourself, you know, lost in thought. You suddenly arrive at home, but you don't really have any recollection of consciously driving it. You have to make lots of complicated decisions on the way from your work back home. Now, this compares with the things that we're actually conscious of. Like right now, you may be conscious of my voice coming over. So the question you have to ask is where's the difference in your brain? If it's true that many things you can do unconscious with these highly trained, stereotypical sensory motor agents, why do you need consciousness at all, A? And B, you can ask where's the difference in the brain, how come my brain can do things and I can do things that do not give rise to consciousness and how is that different from the part of the brain that is involved when I'm actually conscious of things? Are there different parts of the brain or do the neurons fire in a different mode or wh where's the difference? So is it possible then to still carry out unconscious behaviors and not be conscious of them? Yes, I mean the claim is that much of what you actually do in your daily life is totally unconscious. For example, when you talk, right, you have no idea, when you talk, you have sort of a vague idea, the idea that it's in my head that I now want to transmit to you, but then it's not that I, Christoph, am sitting inside my head, as it were, and saying, okay, this is the noun, this is the subject, this is the adjective, now I conjugate it, and then I send it out to my mm -hmm. lonics. I just have a vague idea, and the next thing I hear, these words come tumbling out of my mouth. It's a very complicated thing, yet I don't have any conscious access to it. You know, there are myriads of examples like that. For instance, most people don't know that down in their stomach, in their guts, they have a, a nervous system called the enteric nervous system, sometimes mm -hmm. called the second brain. It's quite sophisticated. There are neurons there, and there are synapses, and there are neurotransmitters. Yet for the most part, and happily, you're oblivious of all of that activity down there that mm -hmm. regulates your digestion and all of that. Well, there are probably as many neurons in your enteric nervous system as there are in your dog. Most people are perfectly happy with the idea that a dog is conscious, so why isn't my enteric nervous system conscious? <laughs> it's a good question. Right now, we, we don't quite understand the answer. Why, why is it not? Why are there no feelings generated there with very few exceptions? Right. You do bring up the issue, of course, then, is that, well, if we're able to go about a lot of activities without even being conscious of them, why indeed have consciousness at all? Yeah, so this is the eternal question, the function of consciousness, and, you know, many people have speculated on it. We think it has to do with, again, if you go back to all the things that your unconscious zombie, in a sense, can do, those things are all stereotypical. Mm -hmm. But if now suddenly something new, something happened that hasn't happened before, let's say, I'm in Southern California, an earthquake, the earth begins to shake, then I quickly have to see, okay, where's the danger, where's the door, where's the window, how do I quickly get out of the house? 
And for those untoward things, for those unplanned things that happen all the time across the world, it's so complex, I cannot plan for every possible contingency. That's exactly what I need consciousness. I need a, a concise summary of what's going on right now in the world, of things that are important to me right now in this second, and that's what I'm conscious of. So it helps dealing with the ever-changing and novel environments that might Exactly, occur. exactly. So the claim is that if you live in a total stereotypical world where nothing changes, then for the most part, you could be perfectly unconscious for the most part because you wouldn't need consciousness. Your body could perfectly well do all those routine things. I see, I see. You talk a little bit in your book about whether other animals might have uh, some degree of consciousness. Is there some minimal architecture that's necessary for consciousness? It's unclear. So most uh, biologists would assume that uh, certainly mammals are conscious. I mean, the behavior is very similar with the exception of language, which is certainly pretty much unique to us. Uh, and certain aspects of self-consciousness, knowing that I'm cursed of knowing I'm an American citizen, knowing I'm going to die, those things, even monkeys or apes are probably not nearly as self-conscious to the extent we are. But there's no doubt that if you look at the behavior, let's say if they see things or smell things or hear things or pain, they behave very, very similar to us. Their brain, if I give you a little piece of monkey brain, a little piece of human brain, a little piece of mouse brain, only very few experts on the planet could tell the difference between the two. So the structure, the evolutionary history is very, very similar. So most of us assume that at least mammals are conscious, which would imply that you may need a neocortex. But at this point, we really do not know. We simply do not know to what extent a, quote, simpler organism such as a bee, which after all is very complicated, has roughly one million neurons. How do we know that the bee really, that it doesn't really feel like something to be a bee, that the bee can't experience the world by feeling. Right now we just don't. We assume obviously it's not, but that assumption is totally unwarranted. There's really no evidence either way to back it up. Right now, I think it's a question that's difficult to answer empirically in any satisfactory way. So that's why, again, the research strategy is to focus on things where most of us can agree they're conscious, humans certainly, and similar creatures such as monkeys or maybe mice. Is there a difference between the sort of perceptual consciousness and self-consciousness that most of us think about when we say consciousness? Uh, we don't know. We don't know. The assumption is that certainly that the assumption that we make is that consciousness is something that was evolved by natural selection a long time ago and then was adapted. That uh, Probably the earliest form of consciousness may have been for pain, mm. way back in evolutionary history, maybe for pain and then for pleasure and then for simple forms of smelling and then maybe seeing. And then as it we evolved, we became more elaborated. We evolved not only a picture of the outside world, but also a model of ourselves. And we began to manipulate that. We call that self-consciousness. So our claim is that it shares a lot of commonalities among all these different forms of consciousness. For once, they're all about sensation. They're all about feeling. They're all about experience. They're all about these subjective states. And of course, then there's specialization, like for us, you know, having to do with language. But the assumption is that at rock bottom, they all share a great deal of similarity. So what really needs to be done like, to get at the heart of this issue? Well, I mean, we really need to understand, you know, the brain for its size by far, by far the most complex system in the known universe. Mm -hmm. And what we need to really understand is at the detailed level, at the level of the components. The components are neurons, are nerve cells. Unfortunately, you don't really see neurons if you do a brain scan. Brain scan, what you're looking at, you're looking at comparatively very large fraction of the brain that includes probably, you know, a few million neurons. And we really need to understand the working of the brain at the detailed level. I mean, just like, you know, in molecular biology, we now know we need to understand individual molecules and proteins and enzymes and how they interact, likewise with the brain. So this, by and large, cannot be done in, in humans, but requires sort of appropriate um, experiments in monkeys or in mice or in other model organisms. Do you think the two approaches will converge at some level, where the global activity patterns will meet with the neuronal activity? Yes, we can begin to see that sort of 
very faintly the outline where people make record in brains from individual neurons and then at the same time they're studying in the same animals, they're studying the, the global patterns to try to relate it to and ultimately that's what needs to happen. But right now we have, we have reasonable good tools to study global behavior like EEG or like these uh, brain imaging devices. And we have pretty good devices called microelectrodes and arrays of them where you can study individual neurons. What's really missing is trying to bridge that gigantic intermediate scale. We really need to be able to understand and record from a hundred thousand cells or a million neurons and try to identify them, try to understand and study how do these million neurons uh, interact with each other. And that's really what's lacking right now. Well, it looks like we are running a little bit out of time, but as a final note, I'm just curious, how did you become interested in, in this whole question of consciousness? Well, I mean, it's a problem that I think most intelligent people at some point in their lives ask themselves, where do we come from? Particularly, why is it that we can have feelings? It's not really apparent why it should feel like anything. Mm-hmm. And I first thought about this a long time when I had toothache and I was lying in bed and my tooth hurt and I asked, why is it hurting? <laughs> I mean, I can, I can see why evolutionarily it makes sense for it to hurt, mm-hmm. but I couldn't understand or still, you know, why is it that there are activity of neurons in my brain? Electrical activity gives rise to this feeling. I can take my computer and I can connect a thermometer to it, and if the temperature goes above 100 degrees, the computer will will say hot. Mm-hmm. But nobody will believe that it actually feels like anything. People will say, "Well, that's just electrons. You know, that's electrons flowing onto the gate of a transistor. That's not really about hot, about feeling hot." Mm-hmm. But in my case, in your case, in the case of my dogs, when we are pain, we actually have these bad feelings. So how is it that they can arise in brains? That's what we're trying to understand. I see. Maybe even more hypothetical note, how long do you think it'll be before we have a clear understanding? It's very difficult to say. It may, I mean, the answer may be around the corner. In other words, in the next few years, there might be a significant breakthrough, or it may take us another 50 or, or 100 years. It's very difficult to say in problems of this nature when you're not really sure exactly what the solution looks like. It's very difficult to predict how long it'll take. Uh, well, I guess we'll just have to wait and find out then. That's correct. All right. Well, Professor Koch, I, I just want to thank you very much for joining us today on Berkeley Grocks, and uh, a very fascinating discussion. It's been my pleasure, Charles. You were just listening to Professor Christoph Koch from the California Institute of Technology discussing the ideas in his book, The Quest for Consciousness. You're listening to Berkeley Rocks only here on 90.7 FM, KALX. Coming up next, you can find out how is it we are able to smell. So stay tuned. Welcome back to Berkeley Grocks, only here on 90.7 FM, KALX. Well, have you ever wondered how does a flute make such beautiful music? You can find out on this week's edition of Everyday Science. 
Ever wonder how a flute makes such a beautiful sound? The answer can be found in everyday science. A flute has 13 tone holes, a system of padded keys, and a range of three octaves, from middle C and up. Because a flute needs wind to make a sound, it's considered a woodwind. It's this wind that gives a flute its breathiness. To play a flute, wind is blown across a hole. This blowing makes the air inside the tube vibrate at its natural frequency. Natural frequency is the rate at which an object will vibrate if allowed to vibrate freely. And it's often determined by size, shape, and material. Since our flute is long, thin, and made out of brass, its natural frequency is a C. But it certainly makes other notes. It's the column of air inside the flute, the air's vibration, and the flute's padded keys that create those notes with, of course, a little help from the flutist. For instance, when all the flute's holes are closed, the column of air inside is longer. The air vibrates slowly and creates a lower note. But if the holes are opened, the column of air is shortened, and the air vibrates faster, producing a higher note. Since we always want to end the show on a high note, we'll say goodbye. And thanks for being a part of Everyday Science. Everyday Science is part of Bayer Corporation's national education program, Making Science Make Sense. Oh, Everyday Science Lady, your fun-filled science facts always end my day on a high note. All right, and now here's Gordon with the answer to last week's question of the week. So last week I asked you how we recognize so many different smells, and the answer is that we actually have a very large number of olfactory receptors expressed in our nose that can recognize different odors. We actually have about 350 functional receptors, um, each for a different odor. And then we're able to distinguish so many different smells by activating different combinations of these receptors. All right, thanks a lot, Gordon. And now here's Jedi Master Yoda with this week's Question of the Week. <clears throat> it surrounds us. It's everywhere. It's just like the Force, but it is light. <clears throat> but how fast does it propagate? If you know the answer, or think you know the answer, email us at grocks at hotmail.com. You won't want anything, but you'll see the light. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Charles Lee. And if you'd like to contact us, you can email us at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Lynn Lee. You can also visit us on the web at www.grox.net. I'm Gordon Campbell. And I'm Frank Link. Stay tuned for more music with Katie.